Welcome to the New Books Network. Hola, and welcome to New Books and Latino Studies, a channel with the New Books Network. I am your host, Tiffany Gonzalez. Today on the program, I am speaking with Dr. Cynthia Rosco, an award-winning author in Adolian of Mexican-American history, as well as professor of history at Eastern New Mexico University. Dr. Rosco is here to discuss her new book, Pioneer of Mexican-American Civil Rights, Alonso Esperales, published with Arte Publico Press in 2020. Hello, Dr. Orozco, and welcome to New Books in Latino Studies. I've had you on the podcast before, and I'm so happy to have you back. How are you today? Uh, fine. Thank you for having me. Uh, yes, it's nice to be uh, with you here again. Uh, we did uh, talk about the book Agent of Change uh, about Adela Slas Vento, and today we're going to talk about one of her co-activists, uh, Alonso Perales. Absolutely. I'm so excited to have you back and talk about Perales. So before we start actually diving in to talk about your new book, can you start off by telling us a little bit about yourself and where you grew up? Uh, Yes, I'm from Cuero, Texas. Uh, Both of my parents were from Mexico. Uh, My mother was actually would have been a DACA uh, person in the 1920s. Uh, My father arrived in the 1920s. 50s. My mother was a high school uh, graduate in 1938, and I have five brothers and sisters who are all college uh, graduates. Thanks for sharing that. So I'm wondering, you've written a lot about a Mexican-American civil rights um, throughout your academic um, career. Why did you decide to write about Perales? his biography? Uh, Well, uh, my history with Mexican-American history and Mexican-American civil rights goes back to 1978 when I was a sophomore at the University of Texas at Austin. I began to conduct uh, primary original research as a sophomore. I wrote a senior honors thesis. And for the senior honors thesis, I visited the archives, the personal archives in homes of uh, Alonso Perales and Adela Slas Vento. Uh, to my knowledge, I was the only person who ever uh, looked at the Alonso S. Perales collection until they were finally received by the University of Houston in 2009. So for over 50, 60 years, the Perales papers were in the family's possession in San Antonio. And that is in part due to institutional neglect and racist neglect of our major and important leaders who had many, many archives in the old days. And this history, I mean, that goes into, I think, as historians, right, and and at large researchers that do qualitative work and work on personal papers, how important it is to preserve family papers, right, in our home, but also finding ways to make it public. I think this, you alluded to that um, in your in your writing of Perales, that some of the papers had been decayed because they'd been stored in storage. And this was, I think, from a letter from someone written in 2001 when one of the archivists uh, wanted to acquire the papers. And I think, and how you write about it, how important, although it's not really focal point, but how important it is to preserve, but create access. Yes. And I love how you, 
as early as the mid-70s, uh, uh, Dr. Jose Limon at the University of Texas at Austin tried to acquire the Perales papers. Now, the reason that Perales is so important is because he is the principal founder of the LULAC organization, League of United Latin American Citizens, which was founded in Corpus Christi in 1929. Uh, and it, of course, is uh, one of our major, major Latino, Latinx civil rights organizations in the country today in, in more than 30 states across the country. Uh, LULAC was a, a, a major force in civil rights activism before the Chicano movement. Um, also, Perales was either the second or third Mexican-American attorney in the state of Texas. He was also a prolific writer. He wrote two books, uh, one called In Defense of the Mirasa, a two-volume collection of newspaper articles that he wrote or articles about things that he was active in. And in addition, he also wrote a book called Are We Good Neighbors, which was a critique of the U.S. Uh, good neighbor policy that uh, really was about improving relations with Latin America. But he was critical of that program because we had so much uh, racial segregation and racial degradation here in the United States at the same time. So again, he's a founder of LULAC. Uh, a public intellectual, an attorney, uh, and also he was a diplomat at, that uh, served in 13 different uh, missions in Latin America. And he did all of his uh, diplomatic work before he was even 30 years old. So this is a man who has an amazing history. He grew up in a working class family. Uh, both his parents died. He became an orphan. He went on to attend uh, Dragon's uh, Business School in San Antonio. Uh, then he went on to Washington, D.C., and uh, worked in the Department of Commerce, finished high school, and went on to get his college education and his uh, lawyer's, uh, uh, lawyer's uh, certificate as well. Being that he's he was able to achieve so much during a time of racial discrimination against you know Mexican Americans and Latinos at large, and but he serves he acted as such a pioneering activist, right? Using the system and also the community to fight discrimination. And why do you think he's been forgotten about in U.S. and Latino history at large? Uh, well, like I said, uh, his papers did not uh, get to the library till 2009. Uh, but beyond that, there has been a long bias against the LULAC organizations, a bias that was created by Chicano movement influence historians starting in the 1970s that painted LULAC as a conservative, uh, anti-Mexican, bourgeois organization that didn't do anything for the community. Uh, just to give you an example, and this, this uh, um, perspective of LULAC continues to appear in scholarly work. For example, it's only been a few years ago that um, Dr. Jose Angel Gutierrez, who's a political scientist, but also a founder of the Rasunida Party, said that LULAC didn't do much and LULAC didn't even 
um, argue for payment of the poll tax. Well, that's a complete <laughs> uh, untruth. Uh, LULAC was at the forefront of arguing for payment of the poll tax, organizing poll tax drives, and getting more Latinos to run for office. Uh, Perales uh, did run for office once uh, for the school board. He was not successful. Uh, but the second time around, uh, Gus Garcia, also an attorney who he mentored, did run. And from that point on in San Antonio, uh, Mexican-Americans began to run more and have more success, eventually leading to the election of Henry B. Gonzalez, uh, first to the state legislature and then to Congress. Uh, none of that is possible without the key important uh, political work that the LULAC organization is doing, despite the fact that their constitution says they should stay out of politics. They're very much in politics uh, promoting uh, the vote uh, and, again, promoting payment of the poll tax because the poll tax is in existence until 1964. Yeah, I'm quite familiar, I mean, with the debates with LULAC and, you know, whiteness and was it really about, a, you know, creating self-determination or was it uplifting the race or was it aligning it with whites and being racist? I mean, those debates are still ongoing, right? And I think you mentioned even... It come a lot of it comes out of the Chicano movement, but also whiteness studies from the two thousands. That really complicates the history of what the meaning is for LULAC. Yes, and, and I like how you. Uh, oh, yes, and and uh, with regards to the whiteness uh, studies that have uh, arisen in the last couple of decades or so, it's important to understand that LULAC uh, was fighting against white racism, and they did not. Uh, like the idea of white privilege. Uh, they worked uh, for Mexican-American empowerment and also sought to empower Mexican immigrants as well in terms of uh, becoming U.S. citizens uh, and, and also dealing with uh, uh, various immigration uh, issues throughout uh, the decades as well. Yeah, and it, Perales is, you know, do, writing this biography on Perales really fleshes out the importance of when you look at individual lives and how they their activism played out for Mexican-American civil rights. And it kind of challenges the overarching arguments of what's been made about the organization itself. I mean, you do give due, right, to Perales and you know, his issues with um, anti-Black, right, Limited ideas about gender empowerment. Yes. Um, well, but you uh, complicate again, that with. Again, yes, Perales is a typical Mexican American in this time period, meaning that the typical Mexican American was racist against blacks. We had that tradition not only coming from the legacy of U.S. slavery, but also the legacy of of slavery and the caste system in. Uh, that was created in New Spain. So he is no different than the typical Mexican-American at the time. What we do see is that uh, starting in the 50s, there's a younger element that is a little bit more open to working with with Blacks, but those folks, uh, people like Albert Benya, uh, Carlos Cadena, are very few. Um, so 
Perales, uh, really, uh, we need to see him primarily as an anti-racist uh, activist uh, because he dedicated every single day of his life uh, we see some kind of activism. Uh, his papers consist of about 11,000 documents. Uh, this is a man who started his activism in 1919 uh, when he was still quite young and continued to 1960. Uh, he was involved in uh, three congressional hearings. Uh, he formed several organizations to protest racism, segregation. He fought for anti-discrimination laws in the Texas legislature, and it was white-dominated, and they simply laughed at what he and other LULACers and other folks were trying to do to end racial segregation. Um, so he basically sets up uh, uh, the foundation for uh, decades and decades of anti-racist uh, uh, activism uh, by LULAC and so many other organizations where it sprouted from LULAC. Again, the American GI Forum is one that sprouted from LULAC because Dr. Hector Garcia was on a veterans committee within LULAC. Uh, also, the MALDEF organization is founded uh, by some LULAC activists such as Pete Tejerina. Uh, so th those are important organizations that really did come uh, from uh, LULAC and Perales' work. I can see how Perales' activism, right, of anti-racist work was really influenced by his world, right, his social and political landscape. I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about how perhaps his family shaped his crusade for Mexican-American civil rights. And you write, you write, you mentioned that throughout your book, so I'm wondering if you can tell, tell us a little bit more about that. Okay, well, we, we don't have much information, almost no information about his family's politics or, or, uh, or ident questions of identity. What we do know is that uh, both of his parents died uh, while he was, I think, I can't remember, but not even 10 years old. Uh, his mother, as far as we know, was a homemaker, and his father was a shoemaker. So uh, his father was an artisan. Uh, but what we do know is that once he was orphaned, along with other brothers and sisters in Alice, Texas, uh, the family, the parents of uh, Fortino Trevino, uh, the, the father being Crescencio Trevino and his wife, they took him in. Uh, we do know that Alice is a small town of not even 2,000 people. It is segregated. The schools are segregated, a white, black, and Mexican schools. Uh, but we also know that Perales is impacted by several uh, intellectuals, uh, Mexican immigrant intellectuals that happen to be in Alice. Alice actually has a rich intellectual uh heritage there with uh, a fellow by the name Eulalio uh, Velasquez, who's a newspaper man and who has a private Mexican school. And we believe that it is Velasquez who has an early impact on Perales. Uh, Perales was therefore fortunate to have attended, we believe, an escuelita, a little school 
where he would have heard uh, about Mexican nationalism, the pride of being Mexican. So he is not just subjected to the racist curriculum of Texas public schools. Um, he, he is fully bilingual, fully bicultural. Uh, also, um, I should mention that uh, when he's a diplomat, he travels throughout Latin America. He actually lives in Nicaragua for several years. So he is very much a Latin Americanist. He understands Latin America. Uh, interestingly enough, he does become later a, a council, a consulate for uh, the country of Nicaragua, which is under the dictatorship of the Somoza family. So what I believe is that he is silent on the issue of dictatorship in Nicaragua, while at the same time being critical of the lack of uh, democracy and and racist political practice in the in the U.S. Um, so he has a a, a, a pretty dynamic and extensive. Uh, background in terms of his education. He is highly educated. He's probably one of the most educated Latinos in the United States. Uh, he he uh, took all kinds of a really wide range of classes. He even took classes in French uh, and all kinds of classes, economics, politics, oratory. Uh, he was known to be an excellent orator as well. He really, as you mentioned, really came out to be not just a person with domestic reputation, but international uh, reputation fighting for civil rights. And one case in particular that you write about at the local level is the Raquel Gonzalez murder case in 1958, which really intrigued me because I knew nothing of this case. And it's really not something that I would have associated with Alonso Perales. Can you tell us more about that? How, how, how you came to that story and how was it for you as writing this story as part of his biography? Uh, yes, yes. Uh, uh, looking into the J.T. Canales papers, which are located in Kingsville, and J.T. Canales is actually the first uh, Latino attorney in the state of Texas. He comes from a Spanish land-grant family, and they had money. In 1898, he uh, obtains his law degree from the University of Michigan. Well, uh, Perales... Uh, hooks up with him in the mid-1920s, and that's the first place that Perales works in the Valley with J.T. Canales. But in the J.T. Canales papers, there was actually correspondence between Canales and Perales about this very interesting murder case. Uh, a woman named Rachel Gonzalez uh, murdered a ex-lover of hers, and she did admit to killing him. Uh, but she claims that she killed him because he had impregnated her and not told her that he was married and he didn't want to have any uh, familial uh, fatherly responsibilities, uh, parental or financial. Well, so she indeed does tell this man that she's going to kill him, does kill him. And Perales apparently volunteers to work on this case, uh, along with another attorney that had already been hired. And we believe that he is incensed at the fact that, uh, that this man uh, was married. Uh, and Perales doesn't really write uh, anywhere explaining why he's so bothered uh, by, by what the uh, ex-lover did. 
But I suspect the fact that Perales grew up without a father, the fact that Perales would have known what it would have been like to be a single mother raising a child on her own, uh, the fact that this man had broken his Christian uh, principles being married and fooling around outside of, of his marriage. Uh, but the most interesting thing about the case is that the woman does get off, Rachel Gonzalez does get off, uh, not convicted of murder. And in the correspondence, Perales refers to this as a woman's rights case. Again, this is in the late 50s. This is way before uh, we would begin to talk about the rise of a feminist, a U.S. feminist movement in this uh, uh, post-mid-century uh, period. So I think that's quite interesting. At the same time, we should mention that when LULAC is founded, LULAC is, consists only of men. And again, there is some correspondence between uh, Canales and uh, Perales. Uh, somebody is asking whether or not uh, women uh, should join LULAC or become members. And uh, we don't have a lot of information, details about the, what the discussions were really like. Uh, but what we do know is that the compromise, so-called compromise, was made so that women could join LULAC, but in separate councils. And of course, today, we would see that as uh, gender segregation. We would see it as political disempowerment of women. Um, so that, that, I think, is really interesting, and that's quite different than the experience of women in the NAACP. So uh, women then within our community are being subordinated by the men within this civil rights organization. So Perales has a mixed record on the question of gender. Uh, likewise, I should mention that his wife is also uh, quite interesting. His wife comes from a solid uh, middle-class background from Rio Grande City. They also had land a land grant. And she never joins uh, Ladies LULAC. She never gets involved with uh, other women in any kind of activist cause for the most part. And she is mostly in social circles. But at the same time, I should mention that she is an inventor uh, she invents uh, three different things, including like a filing cabinet that rotates. And also, uh, both of them briefly opened a bookstore. So she is someone who has intellect. Uh, she's also somebody who has attended uh, Our Lady of the Lake College in San Antonio. Uh, but still, on the question of gender, I suspect that she herself was not a feminist and therefore she did not influence uh, Lulac in that way or her husband in that way. Being married, I'm sure, to an activist who's, who probably really loves what he's doing, fighting for civil rights here in the U.S. and abroad, How what ramifications does that have on the family dynamic? Uh, you mean within his immediate family? Yeah, within his family. Well, uh, it for some reason, they were uh, unable or, or unwilling to have children. Uh, so finally, in the 1950s, they do adopt children. And of course, uh, he's still busy attending. He works, of course, full time as a 
an attorney, and then he's often at meetings in the evening. And I suspect the typical pattern was for him to arrive at eight or nine in the evening. Uh, so so uh, Mrs. Bedales would have attended to the children. There is some evidence of them having somebody who might have helped in the house. Uh, but he is a, a, apparently a good family man. Uh, he would take the children with him to his uh, uh, places of, of work on the weekends. We know him to be a good family man uh, in, in raising these children that, that uh, were adopted. Um, I should also mention that uh, on the question of gender, and also that's very interesting, is that he um, mentored the now uh, well-known attorney Vilma Martinez. In the 1950s, Perales mentored Vilma Martinez in his law office. She was a 15, 16-year-old that was doing work for him in his office. And she went on to uh, preside over Maldives. And under the Obama administration, she became a, uh, I believe, an ambassador for Argentina. So she followed in his footsteps. She was also involved with the Chicano Rights Project. So therefore, we can see even in that way, Perales' legacy continued to impact folks, even through the Chicano movement. Absolutely. And I, and that's what goes back to your central argument, correct? Like he was a significant Latino civil rights leader that hasn't gotten his due within the public. But even with how this book was structured. You have a forward by Julian Castro, former Secretary of Housing and Urban Development, which should solidify the fact that Alonso Perales was significant, not only to the political system, U.S. politics, but to the community in Texas, South Texas. Yes. Okay. And and folks should also be aware of the fact that in the 1920s, San Antonio has the largest uh Mexican descent population in the United States. Okay, so uh, also by around 1930 or so, about one third of the population of San Antonio is of Mexican descent. San Antonio is critical to understanding Texas and actually the larger political scene in the United States. If you think about it, he also has an impact on Albert Benya who was the first uh, Mexican-American county commissioner, who's a progressive and a labor advocate, uh, who also argues against the Vietnam War and is one of the first Latinos uh, uh, on the Central Democratic Central Committee at the U.S. level. Uh, I should also mention that Perales uh, attends the founding of the United Nations. And he is there really officially as a representative of the Nicaraguan uh, consulate, but he really is there as an official ambassador for anti-racism against Latinos in the United States because he's trying to get um, the uh, founding principles to acknowledge that there should be no racism against minorities in respective nations. Yes, absolutely. We're nearing the end of our, the conversation, and I'm wondering, how do you see Latino civil rights evolving within the 21st century with this historical legacy that Perales and others have laid forth? Well, 
Well, I, I think we're in, we're in a, a, a very difficult uh, period right now where rights and civil rights are being challenged at every turn uh, because we have a, a strong and rising uh, element on the right uh, that is empowered by white nationalism. And again, uh, that white nationalism is not new. Again, the KKK uh, folks don't realize how powerful and significant they were in Texas, arising again in the 1920s and declining some in the 1950s. Uh, but again, we're in a period where that kind of uh, white, and sometimes male nationalism uh, is on the rise again. It's on the march again. Uh, so this is a time to be vigilant. Uh, this is a, a time when we need to know more about uh, the kind of activism and dedication of people like Alonso Perales uh, dedicated his entire life to this. Uh, day. Every day, every day, Perales was doing something to move uh, the lever forward. Uh, and uh, the fact that uh, in the 1930s, uh, he worked uh, to uh, deal with the crowded schools that were on the west side, the inferior schools that were on the west side, that basically led uh, to the building of more schools, uh, the, the, the slow decline of segregated schools, finally passing uh, desegregation, legal desegregation in 1948. Uh, but people often take for granted the fact that there were high schools for Mexican-Americans, that they were able to, uh, you know, today easily uh, attend a high school. Those were the earliest struggles were to break down the Mexican schools, to desegregate the Mexican schools, uh, and to get more uh, Latinos educated, uh, not to mention the early scholarships that LULAC uh, started giving to college students in the 1930s so that we could have an educated professional class and not just one that is educated and professional, but he believed that hopefully those people would become activists. Uh, he didn't care about a privileged class. He cared about people who were dedicated to uh, improving society overall. His legacy, I mean, we stand for those of us um, that not only read and write, but are living through these changes, these political changes. I mean, we stand on the, their shoulders, right? And building consciousness, it seems like that's part. Of, that was part of his job to, to how to evolve La raza and the community build that consciousness for that continual fight because uh, it's it's not it's ever it's never ending it's ongoing if we i mean i'm about to i need a temperature check because everything that's been going on this summer with political news it's it's too much to handle sometimes yes and, and, and also uh, let's also honor perales as a veteran of world war one uh while he did not see action himself uh, and he did stay only in san antonio uh it did increase his u.s patriotism it did increase patriotism amongst the mexican-american community 
uh, in the 1920s. But we should also understand that organizations like the Order Sons of America, which was in existence in San Antonio since 1920, it's the first major civil rights organization in San Antonio. Uh, he knows about those groups, and then he realizes that they have some limitations, and he's organizing other veterans who have returned and, again, find the segregation, find the racism, um, and he, he does something about it. So he, again, is the major mover and shaker to create the LULAC organization, of which the Order of Sons of America becomes part of in 1929. So, um, Veterans activism does not start with World War II. That's a common myth that we have in our history books. We really need to go back to World War I. Yeah, and you're, you're one of the leading historians and scholars that argue for that within your first publication, that we think when we think of Mexican-American civil rights or Latino civil rights, it starts way beyond 1919 19, with World War II. Pardon me. The 1940s, it goes back into the 1920s. You, you push that timeline within your work, and I think the life of Perales shows that as well. Yes, yes, it does. Dr. Orozco, I want to say thank you for being on today's episode. And those who are listening to this episode, which featured Dr. Cynthia Orozco's work, pi- Pioneer of Mexican-American Civil Rights, Alonso Esperales, is published with Arte Publico Press in 2022. I encourage you to go out and purchase it. And if those that are listening want to send me a message, you can find me on Twitter. And I encourage you to share this episode with fellow podcast listeners. Hasta la próxima.